Whether in the media, our government, or our schools, Christianity faces tremendous intellectual persecution. This program stands on the intellectual front lines. With disarming honesty, we engage the most difficult issues facing Christians today. I want to welcome you to Theology Unplugged, the radio outreach of Credo House Ministries in Edmond, Oklahoma. We sit down over lattes at the Credo House coffee shop and just talk theology. I'm Michael Patton, president of Credo House Ministries. I'll be leading the discussion along with Tim Kimberly, director of ministries for Frontline Church Edmond, Sam Storms, lead pastor of Bridgeway Church, and finally J.J. Side, pastor of community and discipleship at Bridgeway Church. Welcome to Theology Unplugged. I am coming to you from the studio at Credo House in Edmond, Oklahoma. I am in studio with Tim Kimberly, JJ Side, and Sam Storms. We are off for another session, guys. Welcome to the studio here. Yeah, it's really exciting to be here. Yeah, uh, it is a new series we are starting, and it is going to be a series that I think our audience that I am asking to join with us, join in this conversation, because it is so important. We are going to be talking about difficult passages in the Bible. Uh, There's a lot of difficult passages, guys. And, you know, before we get to specific difficult passages in the Bible, I really want to talk about the why of difficult passages. Because that's kind of confusing to me, you know? I mean, think about it. If God is communicating to us and God is is sovereign, he, he knows language, he knows how to write real well, why would there be difficult passages? Why can we start a series on difficult passages? Oh, there's a lot of ways to answer that. I think one is because God wants to uh, uh, cultivate in us the habit of thinking. Mm-hmm. I think he wants to deepen our abilities to uh, process revelation and to examine it and to sift true from false. And um, I, I always come back on, uh, on you know, famous saying of John Piper. He said, uh, raking leaves is easy, but all you get is leaves. You know, digging is difficult, but you might find treasure. And I think digging deeply, when you're compelled to uh, explore and, and ask questions uh, that don't, the answers of which don't immediately and readily come to mind, I think there is a, a fruit at the end, a, a benefit and a blessing that comes from that. Um, plus, it, it, re, it forces you to pray more. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you really have to seek the heart of God, you have to press into the heart of God and the mind of God. And I think God is honored in that. I think uh, I think there's rich treasure to be found when you have to dig more deeply into Scripture to find it. Well, I know there's a good excitement every time you discover something in God's sure. Word. And mm-hmm. if you're studying it yourself and you, you come to an understanding, it seems to be if you've wrestled with it for a little while, that understanding is deeper and and it's just it's just more concrete. You remember it longer and you believe it more. Right. I think so, too. I think it takes you to a point where you slow down. You know, I think when you encounter a difficult passage, it forces you to be like, whoa, wait a second. I can't I got to turn the cruise off and I got to apply the brakes and I got to I got to hang out in this area and figure out what God's saying, because because he is a good communicator. And we know that from Jesus on Earth, too. I mean, he's the was the most eloquent person responding to critics. I mean, saying things that, of course, are brilliant because he's the brilliant one. Um, But I think when he says things, you know, when we read something like, you know, don't answer a fool, answer a fool. It's like, you know, he's obviously saying, you got to stop here and you got to really think hard about this because I'm wanting to teach you something that you need to slow down and really think hard about. Yeah. And, but at the same time, I do think our audience needs to know that all of us would agree that while there are very difficult passages, 
we would hold to some a Reformation principle about the about the clarity of Scripture as well, uh, the perspicuity of Scripture, which is Scripture, whenever it speaks on the things that are most important, is very clear. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's correct. There's no there's no way in which you're hindered from obeying Jesus and the ways in which he's calling you to because you can't figure out what he's telling and you And my to point do. is then nobody has an excuse. Nobody can come to say the Bible is just too difficult. That's right. I'd, yeah. love, I'd love to be a disciple of Jesus if I could only figure out what it is he wants me to do. Yeah. yeah. And the beauty is that you can have a little boy with Down syndrome that can read the Bible, understand the Bible, and love their Jesus. And then you can have someone that has two PhDs that can be be itching their head trying to figure out what is God saying here? This is so challenging. It's so deep. And that's the beauty of Scripture. And I think the, the encouragement to our audience is when you encounter a problem passage, you don't say, oh, man, I can't understand this Bible. I need to just shut it. Maybe it's not made for me. Put it on the shelf, and I just won't read the Bible. Yeah. But instead, it's to realize, no, it's, it's written for a little boy with Down syndrome to understand. It's written for someone with multiple PhDs to be challenged by. And it's written for all of us. And, and the, one of the reasons we're addressing these is because, unfortunately, these problem passages can get people to turn away from the Bible, where instead they should be turning deeper and closer to their God. Yeah. It's easy for people to forget that some of the very things that make passages difficult to understand are the very things that make the Bible beautiful, Yeah, uh, that they come hand in hand. Uh, all you have to do is go and read, if you have a Saturday with nothing to do and you're bored out of your mind, go read the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas mm-hmm. and just give thanks that the Bible <laughs> isn't like that, um, yeah. that it's embedded in history, in the human story. Yeah. And so it's vivid and meaningful and colorful and rich um, and poetic and there's so much to it. And, but those very things that make it beautiful require us to learn about times and cultures and customs and languages mm. that we may not be familiar with rolling out of bed. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's just the beauty of human relationship too, is if, if I went to my wife and said, hey, we're, we're going to get ready to get married here. Let's just only have great times, and let's always just have really, really fun times together, and we'll just have the most amazing marriage ever. And what we know from human experience is that's not the way it works, is that we do have fun, amazing times, but then we also have really challenging times. But even in those moments where our relationship has challenging moments, those usually in most marriages are the times that you actually grow deeper in your love for each other. And I think that's the way with God, too. We have great major key music moments, but then there are times where the key changes and now it's a really minor key time where things are hard to understand but my experience, at least, is it's through these problem areas many times that I come to love my God more than I did before. Well, this is called Theology Unplugged. Uh, and the unpluggedness of it is that we're gonna, we, we try to speak as honestly as we can, and we try for the audience to be able to join us with the problems that they may have because we have an admission on our own, the own, our own problems that we have as well. And, you know, let me, let me talk about this passage that we're going to be dealing with here today. And it's often talked about as the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the spirit. But whenever I look at this passage, guys, and don't kick me out of the room for this, but this is one of these passages that I just wish wouldn't have been written. Mm. Uh, because, and the reason why I say this is because it, it seems to cause so much anxiety, mm. so many problems, so many people that that feel as if they're lost and without Christ because they have committed this sin and don't know really what it means to commit this sin. 
And so, therefore, they place themselves in the category of those who have committed the unforgivable sin and are just anxious the rest of their Christian lives. Oh, here's, how's this for a counterpoint? I'm glad that this passage is here. <laughs> of precisely, <course>. but no, <laughs> precisely because once it is properly understood, you, pe- you put people's hearts at rest, okay. and they know that they haven't committed the unpardonable sin, All right. and they, uh, they gain the peace of knowing that this is something that is so unique and extraordinary that, oh, yesterday I, um, I, I cursed at my kid, or the day before um, I doubted God's existence, and they live in constant anxieties. You said that they've committed blasphemy of the spirit, but yet when we see what Jesus really had in mind, their hearts can be put at rest. So there's a pastoral purpose in this text as well. Let me read the passage. I'm reading it from Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. It says, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, Sam, I need all of you guys to put my heart at rest because I need this explained to me. I need to know how I can confidently approach this and say, I know what it means. And every time I read this passage, I do not get anxious any longer. I need to know what blasphemy means. I need to know what what it means in this age or the age to come. I need to, there's just all kinds of aspects to this verse that, that confuse me. And so what is it? Maybe we start with blasphemy. What does it mean to blaspheme? Can we, can we actually set it in its context first? No, we got to start with blasphemy. We got to start with blasphemy. No, no, <laughs> set it in its context, Sam. Yeah, well, seriously, because I think that will provide us the answer to the question, what is blasphemy? Okay. Uh, this passage doesn't just appear in, in a vacuum. Uh, starting back with verse 22, Jesus has healed a, a man who was uh, demon-possessed, demonized. Uh, he was blind, he was mute, and he sets him free, and the people are stunned. It says they're amazed. In other words, this isn't pulling a rabbit from a hat. This isn't some sort of sleight of hand. This is a, a, an undeniable miracle, an act of supernatural power. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw it. And they draw the conclusion, this man has done this by the power of Satan. They couldn't deny that a miracle had occurred. The supernatural was in evidence. But they could not bring themselves to acknowledge it was God because then they would have to yield to the claims of Christ. So they say the only other explanation is this man is drawing on the power of Satan himself to achieve this kind of supernatural effect. And it is to that that Jesus responds by saying, you have committed blasphemy of the Spirit. So he's, he's not talking to Christians here. He's not talking to people who love him, who uh, fall into some sort of uh, chronic addiction, or a man slips up and watches pornography, or a wife loses her temper with her children. He's talking about non-Christians, unbelievers, whose hearts are so hardened and resistant and defiant, and they hate Jesus so deeply that the only way that they can get around acknowledging his lordship is by attributing his power 
to Satan himself. So it's a very unique setting in which this reference to blasphemy of the Spirit emerges. And let's not lose the massive power struggle that's playing out here. The demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, verse 22. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? I, I wonder if this might be the son of David. And, of course, the Pharisees moved very quickly to shut down that speculation. No, this is not the son of David. Mm-hmm. This is somebody very bad with whom you should have nothing to do. So there's a massive power struggle playing out in, over the hearts and minds of the people. So are we saying that – go ahead, Tim. Well, I think, too, you see uh, – I'm actually in Mark chapter 3, which is, which is the same story, uh, just laid out a little differently. And even in Mark chapter 3, you see that same progression – Uh, What's interesting in Mark chapter 3 is that Jesus calls the 12 apostles. And so he calls people to come and then he calls the 12 and they respond to Jesus and they follow Jesus. But then his own family are not following Jesus. So uh, in Mark 3 verse 21, it says, and when his family heard what was going on, they went to try and seize Jesus for these. They were saying he's out of his mind. And what's interesting is I think James was probably there. Uh, Jesus's brother was there saying, this guy's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's crazy. Then here, then uh, as it goes on, then the scribes and the religious leaders are also saying he's crazy, he's demon possessed. And I think what we have to realize is that if you look at the Trinity and you think that for all of human existence, the absolute moment of all of human existence is when the second person of the Trinity became flesh, lived for us, died for us, rose from the grave for us. I mean, this is not like a side thing of humanity. I mean, this is the culmination where Jesus comes, dies, raises from the dead. And so the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit is to direct people to Jesus. And so here you have the Holy Spirit moving in people's hearts. I mean, how amazing would it be for any Christian to say, I would have loved to be alive at that time. I would have loved to be on earth, to see Jesus face to face, to see his miracles, and then to have the Holy Spirit inside of me saying, there's your Savior right there. Trust him, believe him. And you have all these people where the Holy Spirit is directing people to Jesus, and they're saying, man, this is a demon thing. And everyone is thinking this is a demon thing except for the apostles that are following him. And so I think that we see definitely that, I mean, if people say, well, this must, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit must be suicide. Or it must be saying, say, saying a swear really word. Bad word. Yeah, you just took, I mean, in Mark chapter 3, in Matthew, suicide is not on the table at all. The context does not point to suicide in any way, shape, or form. The context points to Jesus saying, I am the Son of God. I am the one that came to rescue humankind from their sins. And if you think that I am doing this by the power of Satan, that you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, whose role is to direct you to me as the Son of God. And also, it's blaspheming the Holy Spirit because of what he says in Matthew 12, 28, where Jesus very explicitly asserts, I've performed this miracle by the Spirit of God. The kingdom of God has come upon you as seen in the fact that my miracles of healing and deliverance are done through my dependence upon the Holy Spirit. They're saying, no, it's done through your dependence upon the spirit of Satan. Mm. And that's why it's uniquely blasphemy against the spirit rather than blasphemy against the son himself. Yeah. What I think is really fascinating, though, is if 
it, depending on who Jesus said to, said this to, I think then some people worry like, oh man, I remember like someone was sharing the gospel with me. I wanted to respond, but instead I didn't respond and I lost my chance to come to Jesus. And someone might think that way. You know, I remember the Holy Spirit moved in my heart. I could feel it, but I didn't respond. But what I love is that I think according to Mark 3 verse 21, that James was there. And James could have been one of the people that Jesus spoke this to. And then James, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to him. James became a believer, became a leader of the church in Jerusalem, and was even martyred for his faith. And so I think that this helps to show that if you are yearning to come to Jesus, you have not committed this sin. But if your heart yearns to come to Jesus, Jesus isn't saying, hey, you had your chance and it's over. Is it, is it a one-time commitment? Is it something that you do and then it's, you know, okay, I've come to church and, you know, I, I'm trying to find God now and I'm starting to realize I, I want God, but now I remember back in the past that I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Is it an act, one-time act? No. I don't think it is. I yeah. think it's... The, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you think that these Pharisees, do you think that they committed something that they could not recover from? Yes. That's why... But it would then you're saying it's an act. Well, it's an act that is the culmination of a life of hardness and calloused resistance to the person of Christ. In other words, it's not an inadvertent slip-up. It is the consummation of a determined rejection of Christ that is so filled with venom and hatred that you actually attribute to Satan himself the work of the Spirit. But see, that raises the question, why is it unforgivable? Why, why does he say, why does Jesus say it will not be forgiven? And I think the answer is because it's a sin of which you cannot repent. Well, any sin that you and I commit now, any uh, wayward word, any profanity, any uh, treatment, mistreatment of another human being. Maybe you, you embezzle from your employer. Uh, what about getting angry at God? Get angry at God, shaking in a fist at him, doubting his existence. You can repent of that. But this obviously is a sin for which repentance is not possible. Well, that's only true if they had, in a sense, crossed a line from which there was no coming well, back. Well, is, is the desire for repentance possible in this? I mean, Will you find somebody who has committed this that desires repentance? No, because by committing it, by definition, they are beyond the possibility of repentance. God has, in in effect, uh, let them go, given them over to the deeper cultivation of their sin. It's very similar to what we read in Romans 1. God gave them over to the deeper cultivation of their iniquities. So somebody calls us and says, Pastor, uh, I, I am so scared because I know that I have committed the unforgivable sin and I'm, I'm scared and I, I want to be restored to God, that this, we, we can't say, you can't say that they have committed it. Yeah, That's I would good. say, hey, I've got a good word for you. I've got encouragement. The one thing I can tell you is that you most assuredly have not committed it because if you had, you wouldn't care. You would have no conviction. That's what the sin is by definition. Is not caring. Is not caring. Is being so resistant and so hardened against the claims of Christ that you are beyond the point at which you can feel conviction and therefore repentance. And if you are a believer, that is also by definition something that you can never do in the future, right? I mean, because by definition, you are a believer, right? Yes. I mean, even if we come up and get mad at God, say, say uh, a really bad swear word that includes God's name or, or say, God, I hate you. Uh, can we recover? Yes. 
Holy yeah. Spirit, I hate you. Can we recover? Yes. That's crazy. That's crazy. Is that is, that's our gospel, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, and what what the craziness is is that all of us deserve to not care about God. Like, and Scripture is very clear. No one seeks God apart from God drawing us and putting that desire inside of us to seek Him. And so, what we have to realize is the default for all of us is if it wasn't for the work of God, none of us would even care about God. So none of us should get to heaven and be like, man, I'm so smart. I can't believe I was able to figure out what other people weren't able to figure out. And I was able to just you know, realize the things I had to do to get to heaven. And I'm so glad I figured all that out. But instead, what we realize is that what the gospel is, is that, is that God is the one that moved first in our hearts. God is the one that, that first awakened our hearts to the things of the gospel. And so what we have to realize is, and what I, I was uh, at a university campus yesterday talking to somebody, and they just seemed to not care at all about the things of God. And in my mind, I was thinking, if the Holy Spirit does draw these people, one of the things that, that God can do, which I challenge people sometimes, because if someone comes up to me and says, you know what, I, I keep really thinking about God and becoming a believer, but I kind of just want to live the life I want to live. So I'm going to become a believer on my deathbed. And then that's when I'll, I'll get to heaven. But what my challenge to them is, is God might let you go and say, okay, I'll give you what you want. Uh, then they end up not caring anymore. And the times where, you know, and I think that's good to say like, hey, today is the day of salvation. Like if God is moving your heart, you know, so I don't think you should ever be afraid that you've committed blasphemy of the spirit. But a challenge though, is if you turn your back on God a hundred times, he might let you walk away. But there is still a real warning, isn't there? I mean, this is a real warning. Uh, If we're preaching this from a pulpit, and we're preaching to a general audience of believers and unbelievers we don't know. What is the message we are telling them right now from this passage? What's the warning? Guard your heart. Test yourself. Uh, ask yourself some very serious and pointed questions. Because I don't think it's possible for us ever to know if somebody has committed blasphemy of the Spirit, mm-hmm. the unpardonable sin. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do know is that it can be committed by a non-Christian who after repeated exposure to the gospel, after a, and again, remember the context, these Pharisees with their own eyes, this wasn't on the basis of testimonies. It isn't that they heard a report, somebody just got healed of blindness. They saw it with their own eyes, undeniable, inescapable, empirical reality in front of them. And they were so filled with hatred for Christ that they said, he did it by the devil's power. Um, now, if we had witnessed that in somebody, mm-hmm. we might have been able to say, you know, you might have just crossed a line, a point mm-hmm. of no return. You might have blasphemed the spirit. But I don't know that there's any way we can know with certainty. Yeah. But we do tell people, look, if you are resistant to the gospel and you have repeatedly heard the appeal to repent and believe in Jesus and you have seen the witness and the testimony to him in Scripture and you find yourself growing increasingly hardened and hateful and, uh, and, and uh, resolute in your unbelief. Be very careful. Okay, yeah. then, then, and short answers to this, please, guys. Um, then number one I have is this. Uh, is, is it the same thing now? That is, is it different since Christ has risen, since Christ has ascended? Whenever he says the Son of Man, is he talking about him while he was here on the earth and, and that now we, it's the same thing of rejecting Christ and hating Christ and speaking against Christ? Is there a difference in how you commit the sin then, pre-resurrected, pre-ascended Christ, and post-ascended Christ? 
I think there's probably a difference because obviously, as we've seen in this context, they committed this as the culmination of a life or during the time, the season of their exposure to Jesus in which they hated him and they hardened themselves to a, beyond a point of, of no return, which they were rendered by their own actions incapable of repenting. Now, can people do that today in spite of the fact that they may not have witnessed a miracle, in spite of the fact that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father? I think the answer is yes, but it might come under different circumstances. It might develop in a different way. But I think it's possible that this sin could still be committed. All right. Then it says, and I, I promised everybody we'd get to this, it says either in this life or in the life to come at the very end. Now, a lot of people have used that and said this shows that in post-mortem, um, experience, we can experience forgiveness because if this won't be forgiven in this life and this life to this life or the life to come, obviously there must be forgiveness of some sort in the life to come. Is that right? At a simple level, anytime we take the most unclear text in the Bible and use them <laughs> to interpret the most clear text, that's just perverse hermeneutics. Good you know, stuff. We have good very, stuff. very clear passages. You are speaking St. Augustine. Like, like <laughs> Hebrews 9 that say things like, it's given unto man once to die and then the judgment. That's pretty clear. I think yeah. we can use clearer passages like that to interpret something that's maybe so a little less So is Jesus saying here. this, making it more definite? Just kind yeah, of, it's, uh, yeah, it's just it's, his way of saying never. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it's his <laughs> He's way. just saying this will never be forgiven. Yeah. And in order to reinforce the intensity and the comprehensive nature of that assertion, he says, neither in this age nor in the age to come. In other words, it will never be forgiven. Sam, we've got about a minute left. Talk to the people who are these Christians who are scared that they have committed the unforgivable sin. I would say to them, the fact that you are sitting or standing in my presence expressing that concern and fear is absolute proof that you haven't. Because if you had, you wouldn't care. You would be so hardened and so entrenched in your unbelief and your rebellion that the least worry on your heart would be that you might have committed a sin for which there is no forgiveness. The fact that you're broken, convicted, weeping, and fearful is good news. That means the Spirit of God is wooing you. He's drawing you to repentance. So fear not. You have not committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast and invite you to join the group again next week for another edition of Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged is a listener-supported ministry of the Credo House. They're a theological hub and coffee shop. Their address is 109 Northwest 142nd Street in Edmond, Oklahoma, 73013. They're open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. and Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. You're invited to come and visit the Credo House and maybe grab one of their signature drinks like a Luther Latte or a Nicene Mocha and discuss today's program or whatever else is on your mind. For more information, visit credohouse.org.